one. Blog Talk Radio. People should not people be afraid not of their government. governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Welcome to V Radio, brought to you by me, Neil, the libertarian, not the socialist, despite what you may have heard. Today I'm going to be reading a little bit more from uh, Citizen Power, Mike Gravel's book. Um, I might take callers at some point, provided that I notice them. You'll have to excuse me on Blog Talk Radio. I don't always pick it up because I don't have the uh, switchboard up on top when I'm running the show. But anyway... um, I've got some more things to say. We'll bring all that up after these messages. 
So stick with me here on V Radio, and uh, we'll get started today. Still playing around with the old media? It works with you don't even know. Are CNN and Fox any better online than they are on TV? You're right. I could have told you that. Afraid so? I can't compete with you physically, and you're no match for my brain. In this corner, the old media. It's a piece of crap. It doesn't work. And in this corner, the world champion, Revolution Broadcasting. Don't forget to visit www.revolutionbroadcasting.com for the very best in news and commentary on the issues of the fight for freedom. Unfortunately, the free press is free. So if you like what you're hearing here at revolutionbroadcasting.com, don't forget to throw us a little shit in it. Congress prepared to vote to pass the military commissions to reauthorize the USA Patriot Act, which is a bridge to freedoms we cherish. It is for this very reason we are losing our freedoms. I'm Brian Green, independent candidate for Congress, and I approve this message. In Congress, I'll fight to protect the Constitution and to ensure limited constitutional government. Visit Brian Green, the Freedom Factor, at www.briangreenua.com. Senator Gravel's update to his classic fighting commentary on today's society, Citizen Power, is a sobering assessment of today's woes. More troubling is the fact that little has changed since Gravel first put pen to paper 36 years ago. In fact, according to Gravel, in most cases, the problems have only gotten worse. Gravel writes, most Americans today are frustrated and confused. They are told by everyone that they are the richest people in the world and the world's freest nation. Yet they see poverty in the midst of plenty and continued erosion of their civil liberties. People are tired of liberal promises and conservative game plans, which offer the rhetoric of hope, but in reality, merely protect and perpetuate the status quo. Now the people want to be in power. Support Senator Gravel in his efforts not only to clean up Washington, but to give you the power to build a better nation. Get your copy of Citizen Power now at citizen-power.us. Are you ready to be responsible for the content of your mind? Vigilante Radio, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Helping to create a more vigilant population. Because in the end, my friends, only you are responsible. I'm Dr. Murray Sabrin, and I approve this message to legalize freedom. While our nation's at war and our economy staggers, we need conservative solutions to these serious problems. Here's the Sabrin solution. First, we must secure our borders from foreign terrorists and illegal immigrants. Next, we must secure our economic well-being by getting government off our backs and out of our wallets. And finally, we must secure a first-class education for our children. I'm running for the United States Senate from New Jersey. Please join me at murraysabrin.com. Hi, I'm David Ruprecht, host of Supermarket Suite and a member of the Libertarian Party. Do you ever wonder why Republicans increase big government and Democrats waver on social issues? Well, maybe it's time you shop around for a new party. Libertarians work towards smaller government and lower taxes. 
Libertarians also take a principled stand on social issues, believing that you best know how to run your life. Check out the Libertarian Party. Socially tolerant, fiscally responsible. Chris Sire laying it down for Revolution Broadcasting. I'm running for Congress in Nevada District 1. If you want freedom, better vote for me, son. I've loaded government. I'm losing this crap like Gwen Stefani. I have no doubt. Send guns and butter overseas. We'll lose us eating macaroni and cheese. These beats are stale and my rhymes are thin. Donating my campaign and I'll never rap again. Now pay attention because I'll only say it once. I'm down with Ron Paul and I'm down with Carl Bunch. David Isbell. Lace the track. Kelvin Atkinson is Now let's bring down the evil empire. Open up your wallet and you'll meet the Chris Dyer. Peace, 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 peace. Yo, 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 bring that beat back. I want to shout some holler down. Hey, GOP, what's up, party people? Props to Arden Osborne in the NLA. Daily Paul, down with you. Andy Beamers, Jim Forsyth, all the sneaky hippies in New Hampshire. Las Vegas, beat up. Neo at ronpaulchat.net. Good to meet Chris Robertson, Andrew Brownson, all my homies at the GOP. I'm Chris Dyer, and I approve this message. <laughs> Well, well, that's definitely one of my favorite political ads. <laughs> you there, Jacob? Yeah, I'm here. Oh, you're loud. Oh. All right. How about now? Talk now. Now, hello. Hello, hello, hello. All right. Let me find out how they hear you. Do you guys hear Jacob okay? So I'm... Can someone hear me? To the chat room. I can hear you. But they can hear you. It's fine. Steve All right. Baron says it's fine. All righty. If it's fine, it's fine. <laughs> so what are you going to do for us today, uh, Neil? Well, today I'm going to be reading some of the books, Citizen Power. I'm going to be talking a little bit about the different things that I've gotten. Uh, are you echoing to yourself, by the way, Jacob, or not? Um, I used to, but I shut off the radio. So only I'm only on Skype. Oh, okay. All right. But do you hear me echo? Do you hear me echo? Dr. Oh, Steve Perrin, are you seeing? Oh. Does anybody else hear Jacob echoing? Is he echoing? He usually hmm. shows up on Blog Talk. I think everybody's listening on Revolution Broadcasting. But uh, anyway, yeah, I'm going to be reading from Citizen Power today. We're going to be talking about crime and punishment. Um, as I understand it, uh, I wasn't here for it, but some of my listeners have informed me that the North Virginia Patriots have decided to make a, a yet another show bashing Mike Gravel. Um, so That's I, good discussion. So I've decided that my uh, answer to that is going to be that every day they do a show where they mention Mike Gravel's name at least once, I'm going to make them suffer through an entire chapter of Citizen Power, or more, depending on what I feel like. So if you want to hear more Citizen Power, guys, Bash away. <laughs> they call it a passive-aggressive stance. Oh, man. Yeah. It's a good chapter, right? What's, what's the chapter? It's about oh. crime and punishment. Well, more specifically, it's, yeah, it's called crime and punishment. It's chapter 8. Um, so, let's see here. You ready to listen, Jacob? Okay. You know. All right. Uh, I'm... I'm curious. All right. Crime and punishment. As far back as 1760 BC, the Code of Hammurabi, or Hammurabi provided the first organized set of laws to make people accountable for violations against others. The comprehensive laws govern virtually every aspect of human conduct, from contracts to property rights, 
from marriage to medical malpractice, and from crime to compensation, while the punishment for certain crimes, which would, we would deem misdemeanors today, was extreme, the laws gave citizens a code of conduct by which they could measure their daily lives, or I'm sorry, daily activities. Since then, nations and their governments have faced the choice of one or two fundamental risks. One is to seek control of the lives of their citizens so as to ensure order and security, but at the risk of a bloody and destructive revolution when the collective human spirit can no longer abide such repression. The other is to risk the broadest possible freedom for all citizens in the belief that people in a democratic society will so flourish in such freedom that their national common sense will ultimately repel the periodic tides of demagoguery or anarchy which flow in and out of their lives. The founding fathers of the United States chose to take the risk that comes with freedom, and they embodied it in that remarkable document known as the Bill of Rights. Unfortunately, a repressive climate engendered by fears has enveloped this country since the Second World War, which has severely threatened the fundamental protections the Bill of Rights affords all Americans. Many factors have contributed to the current climate of repression. They began long before the Bush administration took office. Most factors are rather obvious. Our huge and rapidly growing and highly diverse population, our urban sprawl, our fast-paced, high-tech communications, our economic interdependence, and our gigantic government bureaucracy, our greedy, our greedy corporate elites, our racial tensions, slavery's legacy, biblically-based homophobic fears, making scapegoats of immigrants to hide from national failings, changes in the definition of family, and the increasing disparity between the rich and the poor. Our lifestyle changes have accelerated at unprecedented speed, as the world has shrunk through globalization and information technology explodes with the World Wide Web Internet, Instantly, we are made aware, in glaring detail, of starvation in Sudan, tsunamis in Indonesia, levee breaches in New Orleans, and wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Rising awareness has also exposed corporate corruption, chronic hunger and illiteracy, torture in our nation's prisons, the plight of the poverty-stricken in our inner cities, and the inequalities of race, gender, and sexual orientation. We have confronted discrimination at every level of society, yet we remain a society in which injustice prevails and sadly continues to grow. We have witnessed worldwide protests against war, the death penalty, hunger, and inequality. Instead of responding positively to these cries for social change and justice, the entrenched powers have sought to control the ideas that threaten our own agendas of domination. If that meant violating long-standing rights, so be it. Most often, these violations have been cloaked in secrecy. As pressure for societal change, e.g. equal rights, increased, those seeking to halt the change sought more control. The agents of repression, rather than seek control over and changing the conditions creating the pressures, address the comfortable, settled, generally contented, and traditionally or traditional middle and upper class instilling fear in them of menacing stereotypes of crime, drugs, and permissiveness. Do me a favor, Jacob, and mute your mic while we're doing this because I can hear myself, and that probably means the listeners can hear me echo. The repression of communications, the avenues through which people sharpen their awareness and publicize their new demands that have set the status quo, is the traditional course taken to circumscribe freedom. In the history of our great nation, there never has been an administration that so deliberately sought to undermine and control the dissemination of information to the public, to restrict free expression of opinion, and to criminalize dissent as the present one. The rights of speech, peaceable assembly, dissent, freedom of the press, due process, privacy, the practice of one's religion, and the right to bear arms 
all guaranteed by the Bill of Rights and amendments of the United States Constitution, have never been closer to annihilation. In the midst of social turmoil, we have dumbed down America, left all children behind, outsourced vast amounts of work, privatized customary government tasks, misappropriated funds for the upkeep of our nation's infrastructure, and funneled billions of taxpayer dollars for war at the expense of the social needs of our people. When hope dies, its heirs are desperation and despair, said the great educator Dr. James B. Conant. Today, that prophecy has come true. Hope has indeed died for vast numbers of Americans, and desperation has become embodied in the social dynamite we call street crime. As a backdrop of these developing conditions, America has slid into a criminal justice quagmire that in a matter of 35 years has given us the highest incarceration rate of any nation on earth. A poster announces that one in 133 Americans is incarcerated is not a national statistic, it's a national tragedy. I would add a shameful tragedy. Today, the least infraction is punishable by fines, jail time, or worse, political and social protests, possession of marijuana, and even wearing a t-shirt that criticizes the president. Crime statistics are down, but incarceration rates continue to climb. To put that problem into perspective, before Presidents Nixon, Reagan, and the first Bush made a serious case for the war on drugs, only 315,000 men and women were incarcerated in state and federal prisons. That number tripled by the time Clinton became president and has continued to climb. According to the Sentencing Project, criminologists Alfred Bloomstein and Alan Beck concluded that changes in crime explain only 12% of the prison rise, while changes in sentencing policy account for 88% of the increase. Let's look at the sentencing policy and how it has led us into this dismal state of affairs we now face in our criminal justice system. Political leadership, primarily Republican, has bequeathed the U.S. a misguiding sentencing policy. In 1920, prohibition of alcohol, then America's most popular recreational drug, commenced with crackdowns across the country. Prohibition was an abysmal failure. It opened wide the doors to bootleg liquor, organized crime, and lucrative ventures for those who dared participate in the illegal trade of alcohol. Above all, it bred disrespect for the law. In 1933, alcohol prohibition laws were repealed, largely due to public pressure and a courageous leader, Franklin Roosevelt. In the previous chapter, we tackled the war on drugs and its abject failure. You would think we should have learned from prohibition that criminalizing drugs use does not work. The revised war on drugs, so dubbed by Richard Nixon in 1972, spawned a flood of get-tough laws at the local, state, and federal levels of government and launched a tidal wave of money-making opportunities for those involved in policing, prosecuting, and punishing violators at every level in both the public and private sectors. As Milton Friedman, the late Nobel Prize-winning economist, said, if you look at the drug war from a purely economic point of view, the role of government is to protect the drug cartel. That's literally true. In 1973, under the direction of Governor Nelson Rockefeller, whose name evokes moderate republicanism, New York introduced mandatory minimum sentences of 15 years to life imprisonment for the possession of more than four ounces of a hard drug. Along with many other governors, Michigan's Governor William G. Milliken answered, to call, answered the call to check the rising tide of drug trafficking in his state and sign the mandatory minimum law. He now denounces this decision. We were trying to catch the kingpins, but instead we got, oh, I'm sorry, we got a lot of little guys, some of whom were addicts trying to support their habit. We did not foresee the problems that these laws would create. The three strikes and you're out policy, first adopted in 1994 in California, became the first mandatory sentencing policy to gain widespread support and be adopted by most states. 
This policy mandates life imprisonment for a third criminal conviction for any offense. Carried to its extreme in the case of a young man arrested three times for stealing food and sentenced to life imprisonment, that case was overturned, and in the process, focused public attention on rethinking the problems with this particular particular get-tough policy. Other problems of considerable weight and cost have resulted from mandatory sentencing, not the least of which has been stripping our judges of their discretionary powers. Prior to the new sentencing laws, judges used their powers to assess a given case and impose an appropriate sentence so that the punishment most often fit the crime. With mandatory minimums, however, judges could not use their discretion and instead handed down sentences far outweighing the crimes in most cases. Quick to get on the get-tough bandwagon were ambitious prosecutors and politicians whose careers flourished by crackdowns on crime and drug dealing. In fact, the prison population grew so quickly that overcrowding resulted, mandating the construction of new state and federal prisons and the addition of corrections officers and management staff to handle the growing prison population. Overcrowding our prisons has brought additional problems, increased violence, and a higher risk of spreading diseases. One of the most serious problems that resulted from the institution of mandatory minimum laws has been the incarceration of nonviolent offenders. More than half of today's prisoners are incarcerated on drug charges, despite evidence that treatment programs are more effective in preventing repeat offenses. The taxpayer dollars wasted on incarcerating nonviolent offenders are incalculable. This is a shameful waste of the public treasure. Our national sentencing policy has failed miserably. As Senior Circuit Judge Myron H. Bright of the Eighth Circuit Court in 1993 so aptly said, unwise sentencing policies, which put men and women in prison for years, not only ruin lives, but also drain the American taxpayers. It is time to call a halt to the unnecessary and expensive cost of putting people in prison for a long time based on the mistaken notion that such an effort will win the war on drugs. The public needs to know that unnecessary, harsh, and unreasonable drug sentences serve to waste billions of dollars without doing much good for society. We have an unreasonable system. The negative culture of incarceration is our own creation. When people become acclimated to prison culture, they learn how to function better in that environment than they do in normal society. It would take a radical shift for them to change. Keeping the criminal justice system entrenched in that negative culture has been the work of three elements, economics, politics, and the media. The answer is not in spending more money on programs, but in changing the culture of incarceration. That requires a paradigm shift. This is about not having forced idleness over extended periods of time in our prisons, one of the worst situations you can impose on human beings. We confine people to cages and treat them like they are incompetent, incapable, and unworthy, and we believe our job is to make their lives miserable, says Morgan Moss, director of the Center for Therapeutic Justice in Virginia. That's the culture of negative negative environment, which is the prison system that we now have. We forget that people go to prison as punishment, not for punishment. The most dangerous criminals represent only about 10% of the prison population nationwide, yet we're treating the other 90% the way the violent 10% are treated. Such treatment of drug addicts and alcoholics perpetuates the revolving door of recidivism by improving their criminal skills while in prison to better criminally finance the cost of their addictions when released. Until they receive proper treatment to check their addictions, they are going to remain caught in those revolving doors. We must change negative prison culture into positive opportunity, We must turn this negative culture into a positive environment, and we can start simply by treating prisoners with dignity and respect as capable people. When you do so, remarkable things happen. They stop acting like caged animals. They no longer destroy property or endanger others. The suicide attempt rate plummets, and the violence across the board in prisons goes almost to zero. 
This works beyond a shadow of a doubt, attests Moss, who has practiced this method successfully in jails and believes it would work just as effectively in prisons. When there is no forced idleness, because inmates are busy in volunteer, self-selected programs for 12 hours a day, the security staff has very little to do. When you treat prisoners as human beings deserving of dignity and respect, people change. The only ones that do not change are so damaged, so institutionalized, or so immensely ill, or so antisocial, they are capable of changing. That is a different problem than what I am attempting to focus on in this chapter. Stop and think for a moment that more than 600,000 people are released annually from our prisons, and more than 12 million people pass through the nation's jails every year. They come back into society either angry for having been abused and treated unfairly while incarcerated, or prepared to merge into our communities ready, willing, and able to become productive citizens. Which one would you prefer to have as a new neighbor? We train attack dogs through selective punishment. Why do politicians believe that they can't get better results or that they can get better results from punishing people? We need more innovation in the courts, building on success with drug, reentry, and other problem-solving courts with effective probation and parole supervision that lock people up as a last resort and not with technical probation violations. While they are in prison, we need to make the environment conducive to learning and rehabilitating, helping inmates make the most of their time. When they are released, where there are functional families, support should be made, should be made available so that the families can better receive them and be educated in, in ways of keeping them on track with on the track of productivity. To support the family's efforts, probation and parole must offer positive intervention. Often, however, there are no functional families. Are, there are no functional families. In those cases, mentoring needs to be encouraged by faith-based and other volunteer organizations. It is absolutely critical that basic needs such as housing, medical care, and work are available. A person who is denied basic needs is forced by society to operate in an extra-legal environment to survive. If this approach were taken across the country, within a decade, significant progress could be made in changing the culture of the American criminal justice system. Locking up people for $30,000 or more per year for lengthy sentences is extremely wasteful. Moreover, it is a human, social, and moral waste that can no longer be afforded nor tolerated. Other countries that do not spend such vast resources on creating negative human capital will knock our socks off competitively unless we make this decision, make the decision to end this waste. Forty years ago, Carl Menninger, M.D., in his book, The Crime of Punishment, pointed to the deep flaws in our correction system. Instead of taking measures to correct the flaws identified by Menninger, state and national leaders responded to demagogic populist calls fueled by manufactured political claims to get tough on crime. They have created a monster that threatens not only the nation's competitiveness, but our personal security. They have concentrated a vast army of troubled people together with hardened criminals and potential terrorists. We are beginning to see the emerging threat of terrorist gangs taught in our prisons, paid for by taxpayers at a cost per annum equal to a Harvard education. The greatest threat to our nation may lie within our own prisons. Our correction system must be transformed to produce people more able to become productive citizens than when they entered the system. Nationally, over two-thirds of people who get entangled in the criminal justice system reoffend and return to the system. The solution is indicated by the results. People who, while in prison, complete their higher education and participate in any number of programs designed to teach a work ethic and other values that could be applied to the real world when the prisoner is released, have a 3% recidivism rate. Clearly, making people more capable produces the desired results. Incarceration, with some exceptions, should present educational opportunities to every inmate to the maximum of their aspirations. 
If that aspiration includes a college education, then we should create that opportunity since we have already committed to pay this price by incarcerating that individual. It is possible to reduce our jail and prison population now at 747 per 100,000 to levels comparable to Canada, 129 per 100,000. Canada has a similarly diverse population with comparable levels of affluence and poverty. Since there are countries, such as Finland, that employ gentle justice and incarcerate far fewer people than Canada, we must look beyond our shores to those examples and elevate our long-term goals. The guiding philosophy for change must be that the purpose of the criminal justice system is to assure public safety through changing the behavior of people who commit criminal acts and by giving offenders the opportunity to become more capable of leading productive lives in the open community through education and treatment of addictive behavior. A strategy to implement this philosophy could reduce the American rate of incarceration to that comparable to Canada and other democracies within a decade. This would be a domestic martial plan too. Revitalize poor, crime-ridden communities by presenting opportunities for economic, social, and political advancement. Change the paradigm of the correction system as a whole from punishment to problem-solving and rehabilitation. Replace enforced idleness in jails and prisons with intensive education, training, skill development, and substance abuse treatment. Eliminate or modify laws that create irrational barriers to employment for those with a criminal record. Create incentives to hire people with a criminal record, particularly those with nonviolent drug-related offenses. Create opportunities for boomer generation retirees to get involved and apply their skills and experiences or experience through volunteering and mentorship to help people, their neighborhoods, and their communities to find their place in the new America. Enact a federal law to give voting rights to felons who have paid their debt to society. Politics as usual fosters irrational, counterproductive responses rather than effective solutions. Many political races are characterized by accusations that the other party is soft on crime. Talking tough on crime may win elections, but being tough on crime has worsened the problem by packing our prisons with nonviolent offenders. The only beneficiary of a tough on crime political posture is the prison industrial complex. Its prime directive is more profit for its shareholders who benefit by putting more and more people into the system. The rising costs of doing so are an unrecognized drain on our national competitiveness, especially the hidden cost of all negative human capital created by the criminal justice system. What must we do? We need leadership that does not flinch from the realities of the problem. We need a strategy for transformational change that can eliminate the threats to the country that have arisen due to misguided thinking in our criminal justice system. The recommendations in this chapter address the transformation that needs to take place in our criminal justice system for the survival of America as a nation of opportunity for people, regardless of their race or national origin. The problems. One of every 133 Americans was behind bars on June 30, 2006. With only 5% of the world's population, the United States is over 25% of the world's incarcerated people. Jeez. The U.S. incarcerates the largest number of people in the world. The U.S. imprisons the most women in the world. As of 2004, the annual direct cost for incarceration exceeded $42 billion. The solutions. Create opportunities for direct citizen involvement through volunteer programs in prisons and jails, mentoring of released offenders, family outreach, and provision for citizen oversight boards for all levels of the criminal justice system. Decriminalize the regulation of drugs. Legalize marijuana, tax it, and make it available through regulated stores. Eliminate mandatory minimum and three-strike sentencing laws. Treat drug addiction as the public health problem that it truly is. Create alternatives. 
through a restrictive post-release correctional control for non-serious, non-violent offenders. Offer release incentives to inmates for good behavior and education. Treat the whole prisoner, economic, social, spiritual, and physical. Develop meaningful ways to strengthen families with incarcerated parents through regular, less restrictive visits in prison and much less costly telephone calls. Offer parenting classes to inmates to help them better relate to their children and lend moral support to the caregiver of of their children. Work with children of inmates to boost self-esteem and understanding. Support organizations that help offenders return to the community through training, housing, jobs, and reintegration programs. Abolish the death penalty and become outraged at the waste of money, lives, and human potential in our criminal justice system. All right, Jacob, you can unmute now. That's the end of that chapter. Ooh. <laughs> what do you think of that? Ah, oh, man. Um, you know I don't live in America, though. You know that. And um, I don't know why Mark Revell is saying this. Ultimately, there are some problems I'm not aware of. But uh, living my whole life in a welfare state that is very weak on crime, um, I tend to be very, you know, very much um, going the punishment route on this one, of course. Um, non, if, if we're talking about it, it's something that's criminalized, it's not, not hurting, hurting anybody, like using drugs yourself, that's idiotic, that should be illegal. But I'm talking about rape. Uh, repeated offenders, you know, uh, armed assault, stuff like that. Um, I live in a country where these people get treatment, you know, and it's a joke. Uh, I'd rather lock them up, keep them away from society. And um, uh, obviously, I think that the the problem with American jails is that uh, a lot of people are in there that doesn't belong there. You know, people mind their own business, smoking a joint or whatever, or uh, doing that kind of stuff. And... uh, that's criminalized. Well, I think also what he's kind of getting at is just that we're spending a lot of money on prisons anyway, and all we're really doing is making the problem worse. People who go in for, say, they got caught with a joint, come out and get involved in you know, criminal activity because they, in many cases, don't really have any choice. They can either starve or they can go back to being a criminal because nobody will hire them at that point. And you know, it's just a revolving door. And what's worse is that every time you go in, you usually get worse. Okay, yeah, it's true, but, uh, okay, so I have to ask you this question. So let, let's say I go to jail, you know, in the United States, so an uh, employer would, uh, would have access to my criminal records? Is that, is that uh, that's possible? I don't, I don't know your system. It's just a question for me. Right. Hello? No, I'm still here. Uh, would, would an employer have access to, to my criminal records? I don't know. They always do in America. Always, okay, okay. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah they most certainly do. Here they would uh, petition the police for a report of good conduct, and the police would see if it's applicable. Let, let's say you you uh, work for a bank and, and you, you stole like 10 bucks, you know, from the cash register, whatever, you know, something like that. And you're applying for a job, let's say, uh, loaning the mall, loaning, loaning the, 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 the mall, you know, M- mowing the grass, whatever. And then the police would say, well, it's, 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 uh, I don't think he would be a, a threat in that situation, you know. 
Right. Or uh, in the other case, if you were a convicted pedophile and, and they would ask you to like work in a baby care center, the police would say, well, that's not a good You're kind of quiet, Jacob. I think you turned away from your mic. Hello? Yeah, how about now? <laughs> Let, let's say, I'll repeat my last question. Let's say uh, you, you were convicted of uh, pedophilia or something like that, child abuse, and then you were offered a job to work at a daycare center, and uh, then the police would say, well, he cannot do that, you know? So they'll all see if it's relevant, but there's no access to like to your to your criminal record like that. If there's right. no access, no, that's not possible here. So um, just because, just for that reason, you know, because the, the well, anyway. Um, yeah, well, well, you know, well, that's my position anyway. I've seen it working the other end, and uh, uh, where people. No, they com commit very horrendous crimes, and then 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 they sit like, like I, I know that, and I don't know him personally, but there was this guy, and uh, he he raped a twelve-year-old, and he and he was sentenced to three years in prison, you know. Right. So that that's way too little, I think, for me. I, well, I know you know, when it comes to serious crimes like that, I think that's a different issue. When it comes to like like one of the things that Mike was talking about quite a bit was nonviolent crimes. You know, you get caught, like, you know, with some weed or something. I don't really think that sending you to prison is really going to solve the problem if it isn't even a problem. I mean, as he's already said, you've got to, we've got to legalize all that anyway. And Mike has made it clear that if he had ever gotten to be president, he wanted to pardon all the nonviolent offenders anyway and just get them out of the system. When he talks about the prison industrial complex, what he's talking about is that for some reason, you know, it looks as though that the reason why we're never going to get drugs legalized actually has very little to do with any conservatives. It has an awful lot to do instead with the prison industrial complex that happens to like all the taxpayers' money that it makes by running the prisons. Um, they yeah, I heard Al Capone even gave money to, to uh, congressmen who, to keep alcohol illegal. Right. You know, I actually heard about that, so that's kind of funny. Uh, yeah, but about the mandatory sentencing we were talking about, it was a lot of, lot of uh, justice people. Like, like was this uh, guy who killed the daughter, and he got like eight years because there's. I'm talking about the culture. If you think that way, that people are, the, you know, even the, the perpetrators are in our victims in some way and need mental help, then then judges will will generate a, 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 a raise a whole generation of judges who will think that way and who will hardly punish these people. So this is this is what I see happening in my country, and to report, I tax slave in chat says, I mean, this is Nick. IRS tax that's his name, and he says, what about people that go in jail for 10 years and get treated horribly? Well, maybe in America, but here they have TV, you know, in jail. It's like a Hilton, you know, they have TV, <laughs> they have, like, computer, a nice library, you know, like, um, bar. going to go over to Holland and get some crime. That, that sounds great. <laughs> I'm, I'm saying, man, I'm like, maybe for young people it's a crime, but, you know, Jesus, man, it's like, we call it the Hilton, jokingly. Right, but there's some sense of truth in that, you know. And, well, uh, yeah, think, uh, one of the things he's getting at is, is that not that he necessarily wants to make prisons more comfortable, it's just a matter of making them more productive. If we're going to spend all this money on these people anyway, we might as well spend it on a means by which to educate and rehabilitate them and turn them into productive members of society rather than continuing to make them criminals. Well, this is, this is, this, this, this is well, it's how some people say Microsoft is Oh, your sound just got really bad. If some people say that Mike Gravel has socialist meetings, then I would 
Yeah, well, I would have to say on this point they are correct because uh, jail is a punishment. It's not re-education, it's punishment for a crime. Otherwise, jail would be like schooling instead of punishment. And it, that's not jail, well, what jail is for. Well, jail is not Harvard, you know, or, or, right. or, or auto shop. <laughs> it's not it. So uh, I would say, no, first of all, jail is punishment. And, and then uh, it, it's the guy's own responsibility to, uh, to, to take care of himself. Now, of course, you know, if you have a population of a couple of millions, always a couple of people, statistics, you know, will not uh, do this, you know. And uh, you have to ask yourself, should government go out of his way and try to uh, do the job his parents didn't do for him or he is not doing for himself, you know. Um, and I, I don't really know. Maybe uh, uh, we have, we have a, a thing here in Holland that's KBS. And, and what, what it means is that if, you, if your crime is worse enough or they think that you're mentally not grown up, you know, after you leave jail, then you, you essentially use your, 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 your rights as a citizen. You, you essentially become property of the state, and, and that means that you can almost stay in jail indefinitely until someone says that you're mentally stable to enter society. Okay? Right. And, and, you do, and you do get the treatment and all that jazz, you know, stuff like that. And it's not like a heavy guarded prison, and, you know, but... Uh, it, it's, I don't think that's, that's the route to go. I don't, I don't think that's a... And anything's a perfect solution, but I would go more with one for one, one Paul is, um, you know, propagating that, that you know, it's, it's individual responsibility, and I don't know what the state can do. I, I think I think the hands-off approach, of course, uh, victim of crimes should not be punishable, I and mean, that alone would solve a lot of problems. That alone, and you don't have to go there. No, I don't. I don't really think those people need help. I I, I think those people need um, being gone. But <laughs> sexual crimes are a little different. Um, but I do think that we we take minor crimes, you know, minor criminals, and then we turn them into major criminals. And in that much, I understand. If prisons are already going already going to cost large quantities of money, I'm not in any way suggesting we should add to that by any means. Um, I have thought. Oh, I mean, if, that, if, if you if you if you got, if, if you like steal a book and then you steal an apple and then you like forget to pay for a candy bar and then they put you in jail for life. I mean, that that's just stupid. I mean, there are a lot of if you get that if you get the worst case out of it, you know, out of the equation, then you'll see it's it's kind of a uh, uh, doable. I don't know if doable is the right word, but. Uh, well, yeah. what happens to people when they get out of prison now is they, they basically they, they feel destitute. They, they don't know what to do. In most cases, they can't get hired. If they lie on their applications, then they get fired. Um, it's, you know, it, it's really tough. I mean, and in many cases, they just, that's what creates the, the situation where you take a minor criminal and turn them into a major criminal because at that point, you leave them with very little choice. Now, keeping that in mind, I can understand... Uh, I can understand basically where um, they're coming from, but you know, I recognize I don't want it to cost any more money. But I know I had often thought that you know, prison should mean work at least. If you're going to be there, you should be made to work for the time that you're there. 
Um, if maybe the prisons, like I know some prisons, like I guess they're responsible for doing things like uh, like printing out the the license plates. Um, you know, different things that our country is doing anyway. If we're going to be giving them room and board, then they might as well be doing some, you know, something productive, you know, for the state while they're there. Those kinds of programs I like a lot. Now, if by chance, in doing so, they could also learn a trade that maybe they could turn around and then use in the real world, then that, that kind of kills two birds with one stone. It makes the prisoner more productive and after they get out of prison, and at the same time, it does something to help us, you know, you know, with what our country needs anyway, you know, like license plates or, you know, whatever we might need. You know, yeah. if we can put them to work on making ballots for our presidency so we can get more ballot access. Oh, well, this, this is like 21st century uh, civilization, so maybe they can program computers or, I don't know, instead of making license plates, at least, at least use their brain. I, if I were in charge of a prison system, I would have, like, uh, free access to books, you know, and uh, a, a lot of computers so people can... But I would not force them to read. Uh, it would be up to them. I mean, they have a lot of time on their hands, and some will read and some will don't, you know, but uh, it's there, you know. And um, uh, But I, I don't think... I just don't know. It's just... Um, sure, they, they should work, but that's like uh, illegal competition because there are a lot of people um, who, who want to... There are a lot of businesses who want to print license plates, but they cannot compete with free labor, you know. <laughs> How do you do that? So that, that, that's a problem there. If you use uh, prisoners as uh, uh, quote-unquote productive, yeah, they're productive, but we, there's also a capitalistic society, and their and their businesses actually performing these services, and, and that that's kind of unfair competition. So I, I I don't think it's a good idea, but I just don't know. You know, it's just that was in the details as always. You know, so um, in principle, it's a good idea, but you know, I don't know. License plates. Maybe, uh, maybe, yeah. I mean, that's that's supposed. Yeah, license plates is a good idea because that's that's stuff that the government is supposed to do. So it's not actually in the free market printing license plates. I think. No. So, so I, I know where you're coming from, but it well, you know, well, honestly, we don't we don't privatize things like that. I guess what I'm talking about is stuff that the the federal government produces on its own. I mean, you know, I don't absolutely you know agree with it that, but still. You know, it's just a thought. You know, this is why we're we're kind of talking out loud and coming up with different possibilities. I'm not really sold on any of this yet. You know, I use the show and the discussions that we have on the show as kind of a position of self-discovery to determine what I think is best and what isn't. Um, but, yeah, but it's all based it's all based on on on. Uh, like we had we had this discussion before. Uh, it's all based on on what we feel is good and 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 I think. And uh, what is convenient or popular at the moment, and uh, I mean that—that's that, what we are here. I mean that's where 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 Europe uh, is going because people are doing the the, the short term easy route instead of sticking at um, uh, morals, what's good and what's right, and and, and uh, stuff like that. I I, I think. We should rethink a lot of stuff. I mean, Gravel is right. Uh, obviously, uh, the people in jail do not belong there. Absolutely, you know. Um, and we should, we should. There's a lot of stuff. You can fix a lot of stuff by just doing a little bit. You know, I think we should go that route instead of going all out and trying the big bang method and re-educating prisoners and. Maybe we can go there, but let's let's try little steps. You know, let's get the people out who don't belong there in the first place, 
uh, let's say that if you commit a small crime, uh, it, it doesn't get on the public record. I, I would say uh, uh, um, armed assault, assault is a weapon, robbery is a weapon. I think these, these things should be made public if an employee wants it. But let's say if you, if you stole an apple five years ago, my God, man, who's, who's going to worry about it? You know, I mean, uh, let's not be uptight about it. And, uh, uh, so I, I would I would have some kind of dis- disclosure law, yeah, um, like to do it like to do it so people can have a normal life. They can, uh, you know, at, at least find a job and and uh, maybe uh, get married. You know, maybe they did something stupid when they were 18 and then when they were 22, they you know they have a job, they have kids, whatever. You know, it's just uh, only felonies are on your record. What's a felony? It's a conviction, right? Uh, Neil? Uh, yeah, felonies. Well, there's there's misdemeanors and felonies. Misdemeanors are more minor crimes, and felonies are more harsh crimes. Um, but, so the fel- if, you, if you go to jail for, for something that's a victimless crime, that, that's a felony, right? I mean, if you go to jail for smoking, to, to, like you have a, a kilo of weed in the, in the back of your car, and they find it during a search, I mean, you go to jail for that, right? That's a felony, yeah. yeah. Okay, so yeah, so there you go. So yeah, but the employer can decide. Well, hey, man, I smoke uh, all the time, so uh, that's pretty good. You can work for me, whatever, you know. So I don't know. So depends. Depends. So uh, anyway, um, are you going to read on? Uh, yeah, I have, well, because. You know, more negative stuff has been said, so I figure I'll read another chapter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, rub it in, rub it in. Yep. Rub it in, yeah. Right. Go ahead. I'll mute, I'll mute my mic. <laughs> Shrouded in secrecy. Secrecy is the greatest threat to democracy. It masks the accountability of government officialdom. Absent the people with lawmaking powers to co- correctively react to the revelations of, co- and of courageous whistleblowers, Democratic society will remain hostage to the culture of secrecy. The tragedy is that little has changed in the last 30 years to alter the corruption of secrecy in government and um, and in the corporate sector, in fact, it has gotten worse. The prerequisite for a democracy is a responsible, enlightened citizenry. If the American people are ever to become meaningful participants in the operation of their government, there must be an end to national decision-making in secret and policy implementation by executive fiat. This requires easy access to virtually all information by the public and, with rare and precisely defined exceptions, the removal of all limits on the information available to its elected representatives. The government's shrill claims of a need for secrecy must give way to the higher priority of the citizens' need to be informed. At present, the scales are tipped heavily in favor of the government. Information is systematically classified and withheld from the public for vague reasons of national security and denied to Congress by the imperious assertion of executive privilege. These tools of secrecy, when placed in knowing and manipulative hands, can be stretched and shaped far beyond what might be construed as a legitimately sensitive defense and diplomatic data to provide self-appointed decision-makers with a protective shield against public accountability. It can be difficult, if not impossible, for even the most well-intentioned administrations to resist such privilege when the stakes involve executive prestige, personal vanity, or political expediency. As a result, 
American citizens know little more than what the state and its co-guardians of information in the mass media either want them to know or are permitted to let them know. Citizens often doubt the accuracy of what they are told, rightly suspect they are not being told everything, and resent the obvious lack of trust by the government in their ability to understand the issues and to make proper judgments even if provided with all the facts. They are indent- I'm sorry, inundated by propaganda communicated to them as gospel from far and wide in an endless stream of confusing and often conflicting images splashed across television screens or jumbled in newspaper headlines. There is, however... Little citizens can know firsthand or with the certainty that they are not being lied to, conned by the complex and sophisticated language of the experts who always seem to know best, or manipulated by the carefully arranged leaks or semi-official anonymous backgrounders by bureaucrats seeking to influence public opinion in support of predetermined decisions. This is an intolerable situation the government founded on the premise that in order to succeed, it must have the active and full participation of an enlightened electorate. That is what our forefathers attempted to ensure when they created a government of laws rather than of men and enshrined the distinction in a written constitution. That, too, is why they insisted upon attaching a Bill of Rights to the Constitution, guaranteeing maximum competition in the marketplace of ideas. Today, however, we find ourselves victims of a system in which adopted policies often have neither the knowledge nor the approval of the people and are the, and are the decisions of a minority of elites and elected officials. Can anyone, for example, doubt that our present system of document classification is a farce and an expensive one at that? The practice of stamping public papers with some sort of secrecy designation has become so widespread as to be virtually meaningless. In testimony before a June 1971 hearing of the House of Representatives Foreign Operations and Government Information Subcommittee, William G. Florence, a retired civilian security classification policy expert on Department of Defense procedures for classification, claimed that less than one-half of one percent of the millions of documents bearing classification markings actually contain information qualifying for even the lowest authorized classification. In other words, Florence contended that disclosure of information in at least 99 and a half percent of these classified documents could not be prejudicial to the defense interest of the nation. He later increased his estimate of the number of documents that needed to be protected from 1% to 5%, but the point of his testimony remains the same. Following what seems to be a philosophy of, when in doubt, classify, tens of thousands of government employees routinely exercise their delegated authority to deny the public access to information through the simple use of a rubber stamp and ink pad, tempered only by the classifier's own imperfect subjective interpretation of vague classification guidelines. During the 1970s, the classification practices of the Departments of Defense and State and the Atomic Energy Commission alone reportedly involved some 38,000 persons and it resulted in the secreting away of more than 22 million documents. Most other government agencies also have authority to either use or originate classified information. Indeed, the authority to classify has become a liberally dispensed privilege rather than a limited and controlled responsibility. As intended, items such as inter-office memos, backgrounders, and public policy documents are classified more frequently for the dubious purpose of bolstering a sagging sagging sense of self-importance or of playing it safe, by providing a degree of protection for the classifier's possible poor judgment or the author's unsubstantiated criticisms or questionable recommendations, and as the result of a studied, determination in, indi- a studied determination indicating that release of the material would be harmful to the nation's security. But if the excess of government classifications 
are outlandish, the abuses of executive privilege are outrageous. Information required by Congress, if it is to perform its duties intelligently, is regularly and somewhat self-righteously withheld, enabling any administration to make momentous and often irreversible decisions without the discipline of congressional review, the benefit of congressional advice, or the need for legislative endorsement. Kind of reminds me of the Iraq War. Well, I've only got five minutes left in my segment, so I'm going to play something. And uh, it was good having you on the show again, Jacob. Yeah, great. I was happy being on. (laughs) All right. We'll bring you guys more later, and um, thanks for listening to B-Radio. Democracy, a government by the people, especially rule of majority, a government in which the supreme power is vested in the people and exercised by them directly or indirectly through a system of representation usually involving periodically held free elections. In the United States, we have a representative democracy. This means that we elect representatives and empower them to make laws which run the country. Each and every election day, we give away our power to these representatives. It's the power to make laws. Lawmaking is the central power of government. It is by making laws that the government acts or reacts. But what if you don't like the laws? We have a democracy, right? Won't my representative act in my best interest? That depends. It depends on whether it's in their interest. Remember, they have the power, and you gave it to them. Is this fair? No, not really. What if you could participate in the process of lawmaking? Only the Congress decides which laws to consider, and only the President can sign them into law. So where does that leave you? Nowhere. You don't have any power, remember. You gave it away on Election Day. What if we could have the same power of lawmaking? 24 states and several other countries allow laws to be passed by initiative. The National Initiative is an act and an amendment to the Constitution that allows you to participate in the process of lawmaking. It gives you the same power as the government, the power to make laws. I bet you're thinking, but what if we make a bad law? What if we pass something totally unconstitutional? The Supreme Court is there for just this purpose. We too must abide by the courts, and we are only another leg in the system of checks and balances. Congress and the President, there's no change there. The National Initiative does not change the way the representational government works. Laws can still be passed by the government. The National Initiative does not replace this process. It adds to it like adding a third house to Congress. We, the people, will have the same power as the Congress and the President. Is this fair? Have to, because Congress and the President won't do this for you. It's not in their interest. It gives you power. So if Congress isn't going to pass the national initiative in the law, and if the President won't sign it, How will the National Initiative ever happen? 
The Constitution was created by the people, and if we created it, we can change it. So it's really that simple. We, the people, vote for the national initiative, and when a majority of Americans say yes, it becomes a part of the Constitution. It couldn't be simpler. So is that fair? You decide. You'll have to, because nobody else will decide. The Democracy Foundation, a nonprofit organization, has the undertaking to register your decision. Named after the first constitutional convention, which took place in Philadelphia on September 17, 1787, Philadelphia too is the constitutional convention of the people. On the National Initiative website, you can vote for or against the National Initiative. Sounds easy, doesn't it? After you vote, your vote will be manually verified to ensure accuracy. Still sound easy? It's an immense undertaking, but there's no other way. We hope you visit the National Initiative website and decide for yourself. www.ni4d.us
You ready to go to the pool? Who are you talking to on the phone? Hello? Uh, no, not really. Hold on. <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't know the call was still open. Who is it, Lance? You're talking to Matt? Well, let's go to the pool. I, I don't know. Let's go to the pool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, everybody's a socialist bureau. <laughs> All right. I'm out of here, dude. Take care. Okay, later.